This is the Bible Book Club. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And we're in the book of First Samuel. Welcome to the club. Last episode in chapters 8 through 10, Israel demands a king, and Samuel is not happy about it, and he warns them that a king will not be good for them, but they persist. And so the Lord agrees. God chooses Saul and sends him on a donkey chase that led him to Samuel. Samuel explains God's call to be king, and Saul's a little confused by that. After a night of a pep talk on the roof, Samuel then anoints Saul and sends him on his way. Our current story has a back and forth feeling like a game, a chess game. Each team now has a king. Team Israel has a king named Saul and team God has a king, which is still God and a voice and God's voice is Samuel. The irony is that Israel should be on team God, but they're not. They want their own team. What they've forgotten is that team God always wins. There is no point wasting time trying to play a game to replace God, which is a great lesson for us. Why try to play a game with God where we attempt to make it the rules to suit our own needs when we know we're not going to win? In the game of life, the rules have already been laid out in the Bible. Any play outside the Bible or what God has decreed good for us will be bad for us. God's going to let us play the way we want. That's our choice. But in the end, when we lose or get hurt or suffer consequences, sorrowfully regret or petulantly pout, God will not gloat as the victor. He's going to grieve for us because he wants us to be on his team. And like a parent, he will urge us to play again on his team, team God, with his rules, his play, and with his truth. For he is the way, the truth, and the only way to win at life. John 14, 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In this game of chess, Team Israel made the first move by demanding a king. God responded by giving them Saul. Saul responded by questioning the call to be king. And now it's God's move. Scene one, God moves by changing Saul's heart. Chapter 10, verse 8. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you and sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. Note that it says that God changed Saul's heart. When our scene opened, Israel finally has their king, but they don't know it yet. And Saul has been anointed as king, but he doesn't feel like it yet. So God made a move. He changed his heart. This is not the first time we have read about God moving men by altering their hearts or feelings. In season two of Bible Book Club, episode eight in the book of Exodus, God forced Pharaoh's hand by altering his heart. In the beginning of the plagues, Pharaoh hardened his heart against Israel. Toward the end of the plagues, God hardened 
Pharaoh's heart for him so that they, the Egyptians, would feel the full force of God's judgment and so that the name of God would be proclaimed in Exodus 9.13. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, that I might show you my power. God always has a lesson for us and for others in in the actions that he takes. So this was the point that was made in that episode, that Bible Book Club episode about Pharaoh. God knows the heart and its intent. He knows the end of every story before it begins. And still, he gives opportunities for humility and repentance. This will be true of Saul also as it was for Pharaoh. God knows Saul's heart and its intent. He knows the end of Saul's story before it even begins. And God gives opportunities for humility and repentance. The heart will be the defining difference between Saul and David. And most important for us today is this. God knows your heart and its intent. He knows the end of your story before it even begins. And still, God gives you opportunities for humility and repentance. Do you want to have a heart like Saul or like David? Well, David was called a man after God's own heart. I know, so my we're getting to that. David. <laughs> David, all the way. Now, the verses also said that all signs were fulfilled. The signs, remember, that, that Samuel had given to Saul as he went back home. God did that too. He did what he had promised in the last episode. Remember, Samuel gave Saul three signs that would be fulfilled to build his confidence. It says here, all the signs were fulfilled, and it gives us details about the last sign, that Saul would be overcome by the Spirit of God and begin to prophesy. All of this was God's move. Saul won't make a move in this chess game until our next episode. But right now, we'll continue in verse 11. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, and who is their father? So it became a saying, is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said, but when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, he assured us that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Saul's changed and the people noticed, and they guess at why and how this may have happened. Now, Saul's uncle questions him more deeply. He tries to get to the bottom of it, but Saul dodges his questions with details about the donkeys, leaving the king reveal to Samuel. Scene two, the public reveal makes God's choice clear. But first, 
Samuel rebukes the people again for rejecting God as their king. Samuel is super focused. I just want you to know he is Mr. On it. Samuel's speech of rebuke follows a pattern of speech that is often used throughout the Old Testament to announce judgment, which is kind of interesting. In the speech right at the place where the announcement of judgment would appear normally, after the phrase, but you have rejected God. Instead of the judgment, Samuel gives them a king. Samuel is implying cleverly here that this king they want is actually a judgment upon them. In other words, you rejected God as your king and asked for a replacement and you got what you wanted. And you're going to pay for it. And here's how that speech goes. In verse 17, Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. God reveals the king through this process of lots, which is like the casting of stones or some other object. Kind of like rolling dice or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the tribe of Benjamin is chosen, then the clan of Matri, then the son of Kish, but then they can't find him. So is our king lost already? First, the donkeys are lost, and now the king is lost. The donkey comparison keeps popping up everywhere. What is the author trying to tell us? Well, that's just me inserting my donkey thing again. The king is not lost, but hiding. This is not a promising start for Saul. And it kind of reminds me of Gideon in season seven of Judges. The other funny irony is that the people do not trust God to be their king. But when God gives them a king, they can't even find him without going to God for help. God had to tell them where he was. Can't they see who really is in charge here? And I just don't understand why they don't trust him. Continuing in verse 23, they ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. The long desired king is dragged out of hiding and the people cheer. Long live the king. They didn't even ask why he was hiding. Now, I love that phrase, long live the king. I didn't know if this was the first place it was um, ever recorded. I did try to Google that. Um, Nobody's sure for sure. But I wonder if King Charles knows. All right. Scene three. 
Saul scores a victory and the people's approval. So Saul has been chosen by God and anointed by the prophet Samuel and now publicly installed. It is time for his reign to begin with a test. Chapter 11. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported those terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields beyond his oxen and he asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, those of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. All right, I know this has nothing to do with the story, but the family backstory is really curious to me because after Saul was pronounced king, it appears he went home because when the Ammonites threatened, Saul's out working the fields. So was he like pronounced king and then he goes home and his dad goes, I don't care if you are king, go work the field. Yeah, you got I don't know how you go from like, you're king to, um, you still have chores. <laughs> The pastoral scene is so ordinary, but what happens next is not ordinary. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul. God once again makes a move. No hiding in fear for Saul this time because God intervenes in his spirit and empowers Saul. Now, spiritually empowering a military leader happens several times in the book of Judges. It happened to Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. So we're not surprised here. It's just that Saul's the, the unassuming youth we still picture in our head, like plowing the field for, for his father. All right. The people receive Saul's message of cut up oxen. Again, not surprised if you've been with us because a Levite once cut up his wife and sent it out to start a war. So this is just an oxen. But Saul's message of cut up oxen um, is sent out and it unites the tribes under his leadership. Back to our story in verse 11. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so we may put them to death. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today for this day. The Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Saul, empowered by God, 
plays the part of the king by victoriously saving his people. And he gives credit to God. So kudos for him. Here for the first time, the king of Israel is the means of deliverance and salvation, but it won't last. A pattern for deliverance by king is being written into our story that will be imperfectly carried out until we get to the king of kings, Jesus. And again, we have to see these kings as we go through them as a foreshadowing of that perfect king that the world was craving. Now, Saul passes a few tests here, including rightly resisting the shedding of unnecessary blood when his supporters want to take action against those who doubted Saul and were kind of against him in chapter 10. Finally, in verse 15, Saul is accepted as king by all of the people. So Saul had been anointed in chapter 10 at Ramah and chosen by lots in chapter 10, 23 at Mizpah. But still, you know, there were those people who didn't acknowledge him. But here at Gilgal, he is officially recognized by all the people. So it's kind of complete. Scene four, everyone is happy except Samuel. The story of Saul's rise to king began with a warning from Samuel, and it ends with another warning from Samuel. Basking in the glow of the victory over the Ammonites, the people are happy, but Samuel is not. Samuel knows this is not the end of the story. He is a prophet, and he has seen how this will end, and he wants to ensure he is on the record that he did nothing wrong and that a king was not his idea or his doing, even though he was the instrument by which God used to anoint the king. What happens next takes the form of a public trial of proof for the record. In the case of fault for the failure of a king, the people are to blame. They have rejected God implying that God failed and Samuel is going to prove it. Chapter 12, Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things... I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. First, Samuel clears himself from doing any wrong in his leadership, and he's probably like clearing himself even from what his sons had done, because he clearly says, I haven't taken anything. I haven't been bribed. You know, in other words, saying I haven't been influenced by my sons like Eli before me. Verse six, then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. 
So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerub Baal, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Then Samuel defends God by listing how God had delivered them. He rescued them from the Egyptians and he rescued them from the Philistines. God had been faithful. The Israelites had not, but they wanted a king. So God relented and gave them a king. When the Ammonites came, God gave victory through that king, Saul. But he will only continue to do so if they and their king follow God. If not, game over. Then Samuel gives them a sign and visual exclamation point on his warning that his words were from God and not his own. Verse 16. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of your Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking for a king. The people are convicted. God had thundered and made his presence known. He scared them to death, kind of like he did at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus season two, episode 14. But continuing on in verse 20, do not be afraid. Samuel replied, you have done all this evil yet. Do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they're useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. I love Samuel because you kind of see here his warning and being harsh because he's fearful for them and he knows what's going to happen. But at the same time, he loves them. He warns them of their sin, but at the same time reassures them. Yes, they are guilty, but God is gracious. The Lord loves them and was pleased to adopt them to make them his own. They must find the will to be faithful. The warning's harsh, but it's not without hope. And Samuel will teach them the way that is good and right. It's comforting to me that Samuel is teaching us to 
thousands of years later. We too make mistakes, but God is gracious to forgive. Samuel ends with a summary of what we have heard so many prophets say already in our Bible book club journey. Verse 24, but be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. To fear and serve the Lord is to love him. This is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord with all your heart. And shouldn't that be natural when Israel and we, for that matter, consider all he has done for us? But if they don't, yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. God keeps telling them and us the same thing over and over. Well, in the chess game between Team God and Team Israel, God just made a major move. In the next episode, it's Team Israel's move and Saul is their king. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.